All right, so we've spent the last 10 months in Hebrews, 10 months in Hebrews. That, that's a long time. This is a book with a bunch of theology or thinking about God. It teaches many things about the Old Testament, about the Old Covenant, how God related to his people prior to Jesus coming to earth. And specifically, it's focused on the insufficiency of the old way of doing things, of the old covenant. It has given us, to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews has given us stark warnings that we are to pay close attention to what God has told us, that in the midst of our hard times, we are called to endure in faith. The danger for us in the midst of busyness, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of wealth, and abundance is for us to become dull, for us to not listen to God's voice, to be distracted by something or someone, to think that we know what God ha has said and to assume that we are paying heed to that. We're all in danger of doing these things. But the proof for us, whether we're doing this, whether we're living this out, whether we're really listening to God's word, the proof is in the pudding or in the way that we live our lives. The message of Hebrews is best summarized in the subtitle of our sermon series, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anyone or anything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is better? That he is the one the only one that can satisfy you? Is Jesus who you talk about, who you want to talk about with other people? Is Jesus where you go for encouragement? When you're down, when you're frustrated, when you're angry, is Jesus where you go? Or do you run to something else or someone else? Are we invested in what Jesus is invested in? First of all, do we even know what Jesus is invested in? And then, are we living our lives? Are we making or giving priority to those things that Jesus has given priority to? And are we sure that we are doing that? Sure that we're sure that we're giving priority to the gospel in our lives? Believing that Jesus is better means that we're fully absorbed in what matters to him, not to us. And this is where we need to be so careful that we're not just subtly taking whatever we prefer, whatever we like, and slapping that onto what we think Jesus likes or prefers or prioritizes. Is Jesus better for you? Do you truly, deeply believe that, and live that. This is what Hebrews has continually come back to for us. Now, for some of us, this letter maybe has felt really long. Ten months may feel like an eternity for us as we preach through this, but I want you to look at what the author of Hebrews says in verse 22 of chapter 13. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
So if we think that we've heard the exhortations that the author of Hebrews is giving to us, that, that we've heard them before, he's saying, hear it again. Listen again. Know it even better. If it seems long, it really isn't. And so even here at the end of Hebrews, we're getting this call, come back to this letter, to what this letter teaches us. Keep coming back to Jesus. Listen closely to what Jesus has to say to us through this letter. Because at the end of the day, it gets us to where we need to be. It gets us to Jesus. And today, what we get as we close the letter out, the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot of uh, kind of practical exhortations or encouragements. And so it's almost as though we, we think that we should get maybe some more practicalities or just kind of a goodbye. And we do get a goodbye, but we also get one more reminder of the crucial theology of Hebrews. So let's read uh, Hebrews 13, we're going to read verses 9 through 16, and then we're going to read verses 20 and 21 as well. So follow along with me here. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect, neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so let's jump into this here at verse 9 to begin. So verse 9 seems to suggest that there is some troubling teaching going on in and around the church that's being written to. It says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So I want to comment here first on the idea of diverse teachings. Okay, so th this is the idea that there's many different teachings. Okay, so in our context of Western Christianity, there has been a tendency that uh, to accumulate theological knowledge, like to go to the Bible and find kind of these discrete corners of the Bible and, and learn these novel facts uh, that are in the Bible. And, and that's not bad, but it can oftentimes, at least in my experience, it's like a badge that we can wear, that, that we want to go and find all these diverse teachings um, within the Bible, but then that it, it, it eventually goes outside of the Bible as well. And so here's the thing. If we gain lots of little-known knowledge about the Bible, we might be able to impress some people. We might be able to sit in some Christian circles and 
gain an advantage in some way. And that's a lot of times kind of accumulating some of this knowledge. It can be used almost like a weapon or as something where we can kind of wield power or some form of superiority over other people. This is the warning against diverse teaching. Many people are not turned on by the simplicity of the gospel. They're turned off by how simple the gospel is. There's not enough to do if Jesus does it all. We need something to busy ourselves. We, we want to do something. And that's where all these diverse teachings end up. They, they end up in a spot where we would be able to be able to put marks on the chalkboard to say, look at what I have done. And this is what is being pushed against. So, so that's diverse teaching. But now the idea of strange teachings gets that kind of newness. New does not equal good. So pastors will get into trouble when they start seeing something no one else has ever seen before. So every once in a while, I might see a pastor on social media feeds and they'll say, oh, I saw this thing in this verse that I don't think anybody's ever seen before. And, and immediately my thought is that's not going to end well. That, that is not good. These new and strange teachings oftentimes will harm other people because what they end up doing is they distract from the gospel. Our attempts to come up with new teachings will take many different forms. And it becomes clear in these verses that the issue at stake here is food. That there's some kind of teacher that's going around and teaching some things about food. And we don't know exact, the exact teaching that's being referenced here. But it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine food rules. Okay, think about all the food trends that we've encountered in the recent past. There's the paleo, there's the Atkins, there's the South Beach, there's clean eating, there's keto. Like, the list could go on and on and on. People get passionate about these. Maybe some of you are. At times, I, I care a lot about what I eat, at least for like weeks at a time, and then I kind of do something else. But each of these has their specific rules that they're going to follow. And, and when we think about the Bible, we think about food rules and food laws. There's all kinds of food rules and food laws in the Old Testament that were employed for a specific purpose, to communicate the idea of cleanliness or to accomplish cleanliness. But what Jesus teaches us is what we put into ourselves doesn't make us clean. And the author is telling his readers here in Hebrews that the devotion to and consumption of foods cannot strengthen our heart. We can't go to foods or we could say anything else to find what we are ultimately looking for, to truly strengthen us. So we'll create a food list of do's and don'ts. And if we follow it well, maybe we'll be able to feel proud of what we have accomplished. You know what? Eat, following those food rules, it, it might help with our digestion. It, it may allow us to have more energy. It may cause us to think more clearly, but it can't strengthen us spiritually. At the end of the day, it can't save us. It can't save us. What we need primarily 
is grace. Grace is what will strengthen us. Grace is what empowers us and endures, even healthy eating. So, so as grace strengthens us spiritually, then this can work itself out in physical realities. But, but most importantly, the way in which grace strengthens us is that it, it's needed to save us, to address our greatest problem in this world. So grace transforms us. It, it says here, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It is good for your heart to be strengthened by grace. Nothing will sustain you like grace does. Nothing will encourage you like grace does. Nothing will change you like grace does. This past week, I was studying uh, some verses in the uh, book of James and James five with some other guys from center church. And uh, we came across um, this verse that says, do not grumble, do not grumble. And I, along with others, were struck by just how common grumbling is. So speaking for myself, like it, it just can be so common to begin to grumble. And, and I know I I've heard it in many other people as well. It's just easy for us to kind of, move into grumbling, almost as though it's a native language for us. But you know what's absent in our grumbling? Grace. When we are grumbling, we lose sight of the existence of grace. We, we lose sight of the fact of how Jesus has borne with us, how he bears with us in a daily capacity. And this is essential. This is essential for us to live as Christians. We, we need to continuously have grace front and center in the way in which we think and live all of life. Okay, so there's this contrast uh, between grumbling and grace, right? But there's a contrast, uh, a much more important contrast uh, that I want to pull out here that's going on in verses 10 through 16. So when hearing the mention of food in opposition to grace, we should hear something going on. So what the Bible does a lot of times is that it's not just what we read, but there's usually layers. There's usually symbols that are being employed. And so when we hear food being contrasted with grace, one thing that we should be able to hear in this is a contrast between law and grace. Okay. And this is what the author is going to lead us into in verses 10 through 16. It, I, I love how the Bible does this, just the symbolism that's utilized throughout the Bible. And now, if we're reading the end of Hebrews, we might say, man, this is, seems kind of oddly placed that the author kind of goes off on this tangent, and some of it maybe seems a bit obscure here. Uh, but what the author is doing here is driving, again, he is driving his main point home that Jesus is better. So verse 11 is speaking of animals being sacrificed, and the blood of those animals is being brought to an altar, to a holy place, as atonement for sin or payment for sin, the sin of maybe an individual or a family or the nation of Israel itself. The blood of animals is being shed 
for the payment of sin or forgiveness of sin in a temporary sense. Now, we have to be really clear here. The altar, the holy place, the high priest, the sin offering, all of those things, they are intricately connected to Old Testament law. This is what God had instituted for his people. Back at Mount Sinai, when he gave the Ten Commandments and many other laws and commands for his people. But verse 11 has a really interesting phrase at the end. It says, the bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. The bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. So the meat and the fat are taken off. Uh, they're used for certain things. But then what, and the blood is taken, that's going to be offered as, as the sacrifice on the altar. Okay, but then what remains, the bodies of those animals, is then taken outside of the camp. This is really significant. So, so it's, it's connoting or, or inferring the idea of dirtiness or uncleanliness. Okay, so, so these things aren't allowed in God's temple. Right? They're not allowed near God's holiness. They need to be brought outside of the camp. And you'll find this in many ways in the Old Testament when people were deemed unceremonially unclean or ceremonially unclean, they were sent outside of the camp or the city for a prescribed period of time. Okay, so this happens over and over. And that's part of what's happening here as well. These unclean things are being brought outside of the camp or the city to be taken care of. Now I want to look at verse 12, okay? So these bodies of these animals are being taken outside of the camp. Let's look at verse 12 now. This says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So when you hear gate, what you need to hear is city, okay? So the gate is what leads into and out of the city. So Jesus is suffering outside of the gate, outside of the city. Now, some of us, when we might read through this, or we might read the account of this happening in the gospel, we might think that these are merely just historical facts about location. But location is oftentimes communicating something much deeper than just the location itself. It oftentimes is communicating rich theology to the reader. And that's what's happening here. The idea of a city that holds a temple with an altar on which a high priest makes sacrifices for the atonement of sin has in mind law, okay? This is all part of the old system. This is all part of the old covenant, okay? So remember, I, I use this phrase, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. So, so this is all part of how things are wrapped up together really tightly, okay? So when we're reading this in Hebrews, we should understand that there's a strong correlation that's being communicated here. And the reason this is all so significant is because Jesus is differentiating himself. Jesus is doing something new. For him to die in Jerusalem, inside the city gates, in the temple, in, in that arena, in that realm, is for him to not distinguish himself 
and what he's doing from the old way. In John chapter 1, some of Jesus' first disciples questioned whether anything good can come out of his hometown. Jesus is making a new way. Jerusalem stood for the old covenant. And Jesus is going outside of Jerusalem in his death to show that the shedding of his blood is altogether different than the shedding of blood of animals. It is his blood and his blood alone that saves us. It's not rule following, but grace, works-based salvation, including food rules, tires us out. And at the end of the day, it leaves us unsaved. It does not give us what we are looking for, whereas grace strengthens us and truly does save us. And therefore, in verse 13, what we read is we are to leave the city of law, the city of the old covenant, the city of doing things the old way, the city of trying to obey so that you will be blessed. That is the city that we are to leave. And we are to go to where Jesus is, to go outside the camp, to go outside the city, to die with Jesus, and in this, to find the life that we yearn for. As 1 Corinthians one twenty three states, we preach Christ crucified. That's the whole of our message. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We cling to the simple, empty-handed gospel. We bring nothing. We go outside the city gates with nothing. We've got nothing to offer. Jesus does it all for us. I grew up in a town of 306 people at the time. And, and I had this sense growing up in a small town that there was this clear division between the city, the big city where I live now, and the small town in which I was living. The city was vibrant. It was bustling. There's a lot of great things. All, all the important things were happening there. It was very cosmopolitan. It was enlightened we would travel there for special occasions. In that, you begin to kind of get this idea of, well, you're just kind of a hick that lives in the sticks. And, and I still identify with my hick roots, and I'm, I'm cool with that. But, but I've learned a little bit more about the dynamics between the bustling city and the, the hick town. When we think about the gospel, the gospel doesn't reflect on our aptitude. It's not looking at the city and saying, oh, look at how impressive that is. What the gospel does is it focuses in on our ineptitude. Not our aptitude, but our ineptitude, our lack, our inability. And then in the gospel, Jesus comes and he covers over all of that. He does everything for us. The gospel is really simple. It's not complex. It's deep. It's multifaceted. But at the end of the day, it's still really simple. 
Jesus is better, far better than us. Jesus is what we need. In verse 14 that we read here that clarifies and that, that there is no lasting city here for us. There's no city that we can run to that's going to give us what we yearn for. Whether that city is 306 people or a million people, there's no city here that's going to offer us that. But there is a city that is eternal, that is good, that is beautiful. And we've seen maybe some of hints of this reality this past week. Okay, Minneapolis, though a beloved city, has burned in many parts of it before our eyes. This is not the city that we long for. This is the city that many of us want to escape. And the author of Hebrews is telling us the city where you, where you might try to justify yourself, where you might try to make much of yourself, that is the city to leave. We are to leave the city of law, of works-based righteousness. It will not maintain. At the end of the day, that city will not inspire you. We go to the city of grace. That is what will strengthen us. Jesus is there, ruling over the eternal city. And we are called to go to that city and to find true rest there. Even as we live in a city of unrest, we can spiritually go to a city that is filled with rest, in part right now, but one day in full. And I love how verse 15 drives this home. It, it speaks of the sacrifice then that we offer up in all of this. Notice it's not our good works. That's not the sacrifice that we offer up. The sacrifice that we offer up is not an animal, obviously. There's no altar where we worship. That's been removed. Jesus has provided the sacrifice, okay? The once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus offered in his life is sufficient for us. So now, the sacrifice that we are called to offer up is one of praise. Speaking and singing the name of Jesus telling others of the goodness and the greatness that is found only in Jesus, letting our lives point to him, acknowledge Jesus in everything that we do. And this is something that we're called to do continually, not once, not when it's convenient, not when we're on the clock for Jesus. Continually, our lives are to offer up a sacrifice of praise. And this is the message that needs to be told over and over. This is the message that the author of Hebrews has told over and over. Leave the city of law. Leave that city where you try and justify yourself. Go to the city of grace. Find rest in Jesus. Tell his story and how he's included you in his story. Tell that story. Make much of Jesus. Our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise, of telling of who Jesus is and what he has done. And just to be clear then, okay, we hear in verse 16, 
don't neglect to do good and to share what you have. It's almost as though the way that we read this here, it's an of course. Of course you'll do this. It's assumed. This is what Jesus has done for us. Knowing Jesus' sacrifice for us only compels us to sacrifice for others. Nothing else will make sense. Nothing else will make sense. To not do this causes us to just become consumers. We're going to take what Jesus gives and we're going to put our feet up and enjoy it. We're called to go outside of what is comfortable for us and to know others, to care for others, to love others, to serve others, and in all of this, offer up the sacrifice of praise. And, and how does this then happen? How does this then happen? One last reminder, it happens through the power, through the guidance, and the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is where peace is found. He is the one who will equip us and who will sustain us. He is the one who works in us and ultimately will work through us as well. Jesus and Jesus alone. Then we are called to hope and trust in him, to gaze at him, to consider him, and then to share and sing about him. All of this happens in and through Jesus, which is why the author of Hebrews has told us to continually consider him, to continually fix our eyes on Jesus. Okay, so then the final word that we get here in the book of Hebrews is grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. Grace is our only hope. You and I, we are guilty. We are guilty individuals of sinning against God. Now, we can look outside of ourselves and we can find all kinds of people who are doing things wrong or who are acting worse than us. Any of us can do that. We can justify ourselves easily and we do do that often. When we look out at our world, we can see grace is needed out there. I think that most of us would be able to acknowledge that. But first and foremost, Grace is needed here. We need to let grace sink into our hearts deeply to change us. We cannot bring grace out there unless it's first permeated our hearts, unless it's first changed us in some significant ways. The reality is, Center Church, our world, our cities are aching for grace. We can say justice too, but justice comes through grace. Our cities are aching for grace. For those of us who are Christians, we possess a word, a message, news that can radically change lives, that can change cities and societies. Do we believe that grace is this good? Do we believe that grace is powerful? Powerful enough to change others? Do we believe it's good enough that we want to give it to other people? The grace that's found in and through Jesus, this undeserved gift of forgiveness that he offers to us, is the greatest gift this world has ever seen. 
Nothing else compares. It is the final, best, ultimate word. And that is the word that we're called to then bring to this world in the cities, outside of the cities, to call people to a better city, the city of Jesus, the city of grace. A couple points of gospel application for us as we wrap things up here. So first of all, Jesus went outside the camp. He went outside the city to offer an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus became unclean. Literally, he became unclean. The perfect God became human and didn't just become human, but he actually became sin itself. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus became sin. In all of its ugliness, in all of its horror, Jesus became that. And in this, in dying as condemned sin, he provides a forgiveness and a freedom that we will never find on our own. He saves us by his works so that our works can then praise him, not earn something from him. He's done all that, but so that our works can praise him. In the midst of injustice, in sickness, and uncertainty, Jesus, he knows it all. He understands this. We know this because we know that he's gone outside the city. He was disowned. He was abused. He was killed. He understands any emotion that we may be feeling in these days. So he went outside the camp. He went outside the city. So, so he understands what we're walking through right now. So go to him for comfort, for whatever you're, you're needing in these days. And then secondly, be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by grace, not anything else. This week has placed in front of us realities that for many of us feels overwhelming. Maybe for some of us, we just it feels distant from us or, or for us. But for many of us, I know that this week has felt overwhelming, maybe because of the sadness. Just looking out and you're sad, you're overwhelmed by sadness. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's because of the injustice. For some of us, it might be the helplessness. I don't know what to do. I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. As we look out at the chaos that surrounds and smell the smoke of anger that, that fills our nostrils, as we feel weak need by the unknown of what might happen next or ache for loved ones and their suffering, the grace of the gospel is the only place we can go to find rest and hope. It's the only place that we can find something sturdy. Nothing else is adequate. It even changed systems and policy policies as badly as those things are needed will not sufficiently offer us what we are looking for. The only way we find what we are looking for is in and through the gospel. We need to go back to Jesus Remember what he has done for us and be strengthened by his grace.